I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you weren't here on Sunday or you didn't listen to the service yet, I encourage you to do so. I'm trying to make it so as we come to all passages, but a passage like this, that it doesn't seem as though it's not presented in a balanced manner. So please listen to that. You can listen to the audio or you can go back and watch the stream or listen to the stream because this certainly isn't a full explanation of what the Bible means when it says that wives are to submit to their own husbands in the Lord. But I want to go over a few more questions regarding submission before we continue. So let's read verse 22, 23, and 24, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. So here is another question. What is the extent of the submission? We're told here that wives are to submit to their husband as to the Lord. And some teach that that phrase, as to the Lord, means as if he were God. What do you think about that, that translation? Some of you are nodding your heads like this. Oh, you're nodding your heads like this. It says, as to the Lord. There will be some that teach like, well, we have the Lord. We follow him in perfect submission. We follow him completely, complete submission. Uh, that as if he were God is in error. No one but God deserves our complete submission. And we look at this here. He alone is, is worthy of that. We studied last Thursday night, First Peter chapter 3, and listen to what it says there. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So you see here the Bible again describes for us the submission of the wife to her husband. But notice in this situation that the husband is living in a corrupt manner, but she is still living in a pure manner. He's living off base. He's wayward. He is not being obedient. But even though he is being disobedient, she's not following him in his disobedience. So isn't the Bible clarifying for us when it says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, that it's not the case that a woman can still be pure and should be pure and right before God, not following after a disobedient husband. Only the Lord is the Lord with, with the capital L. There are authorities in our lives. There is a, a system and even a submission system that God has put in place in his word. But let's make that clear that only the Lord deserves that kind of submission. Look at that situation. We follow Jesus wherever he goes. That's our aim, isn't it? That we seek to do what he does to have his heart. But when it comes to marriage, there are certainly times when the wife isn't submitting because of the depravity, because of the waywardness, because of the corrupt life that's being lived out before her. Now, following God is done through the guidance of his word. And this happens so much, you know that it does. You don't need me to tell you. It's not just the husband or the wife saying, I think this is what God wants. I think this is what God doesn't want. That card can be played in the context of marriage quite often, can't it? 
Because if God's on your side, if God is for me, who can be against me, right? I'm going to be right every time, and then he or she has to do. Let's be really careful with that, that we're listening to what God's word says. And it's not extremely complicated that we search it, that we know it, that we live it out. What's the extent of the wife's submission? This submission is submission, but it's under God. If you back up in 1 Peter chapter 3, which I just read, into chapter 2, it speaks of submission to governing authorities. Those governing authorities, those civil authorities, are to be submitted to under God, not as if they are God. And the same is the case with husband and wife. I want you to consider the basis of civil disobedience. Because in the same context, 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of that submission to governing authorities. Can't civil disobedience be in regards to a sin of commission or a sin of omission? For example, consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were commanded to do something, to commit a sin of commission, to bow down and to worship, according to Nebuchadnezzar, the golden image, right? You, you will do this. And they refused. So they did not commit that sin of commission. But now consider Daniel. That was, would have been a sin of omission, wouldn't it? Because Daniel was commanded to not pray to his God, right? So all he had to do was nothing, technically, to be obedient to Darius. So when it comes to civil disobedience, where we're obeying the higher command of God rather than the lower and erroneous command of men, keep in mind that it's not just in regards to what we do, it's in regards to what we don't do. God puts civil leaders in their positions. He allows them to be there just as God puts husbands in their positions. But submission to God is above any king, above any president, above any boss or manager or foreman or husband. Now, carry the principle of civil disobedience into marriage. God doesn't call the wife to participate in her husband's sin with him. He doesn't call a wife to neglect to do that which is good because of her husband's direction. So if there is a husband, this is just purely imaginary, and he is not, he does not have the priority of serving God. He does not have the priority of fellowshipping. He doesn't have the priority of devotion to the Lord. Those aren't the husband's priorities. The wife should still serve, should still fellowship, should still be devoted. Now I'll say this, she will need to wisely balance the needs of her home, especially her responsibilities towards her husband, and, and that what she does with the people of God and the church, but not using her obedience as a point of contention, because the whole point is that she would win her husband by her conduct, but not that she would stop doing that which, that which she knows is right. This situation happens a lot where there's a husband, and he doesn't have a heart for God. Now, notice that First Peter chapter 3 does not say that this man is necessarily unsaved. It says he's disobedient. And we sometimes say, oh, that, that guy's not a Christian. It doesn't say, it doesn't make a judgment on his soul. It just says he's a disobedient man. He's not walking in a manner that's consistent with what pleases God. That wife can then still live in a way that pleases God. Now, that balance is something where she is, her whole intention is to live out before God and before her husband that changed life. That's her intention, that her husband would become obedient. 
So the extent of a wife's submission is under God. It's under his command not to treat her husband as if he were God. So this phrase, as to the Lord, that we see, if it doesn't mean as if he is God, I, I see it as addressing the motivation for submission. I believe this is saying that a wife's submission to her husband is part of the way that she submits to God. That when she carries out this command, that she is living out her Christianity. And that's a disconnect that can take place sometimes in a person's life where they don't see that in carrying out that command, they're actually living out their service to the Lord. Yes, all of what we spoke of in the last session about the specifics of Scripture and the principles of the Bible and fervent prayer and wise counsel. But at the end of the day, a choice must be made, and submitting, after all, is a part of her service to God, part of the way that she lives out her Christian faith. So question number two is, what is the motive for the wife's submission, for a wife's submission? It is to please God. If a woman ignores the direction of biblical submission and says, she's pleasing to God with her life, she should think again. Because we can't compartmentalize our lives and say, oh, I'm all good except for this one spot and God's okay with that area being sinful. No, he isn't. He's the Lord of all. Even the things that are extremely difficult um, beyond what any person could necessarily relate with, whatever you're going through. Even the Lord of your marriage, the Lord of your submission. So, wives, your reaction to your husband is a part of your life for Christ. It's a part of your, your faith. It's a part of your walk with God. That is the motive for submission. Just like every single command that we aim to keep, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I'm reminded that we don't keep his commands all the time because they're easy for us. In fact, they're often not but because we desire to bring good pleasure to God. We love him because he's loved us first, and that's why we keep those. So that being our refocus as far as submission. That's two pages for wives and now seven for husbands. Let's read. <laughs> husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. I'm not glancing over this, but I have to emphasize again, even though it was emphasized on Sunday, from verse 25, husbands, sacrificial love. Isn't that what the word is saying to us? Lay down your life and wait. Isn't that part of the way the Lord has loved us? He laid down his life for me, and then he waited for me. He pursued me. He was kind to me. He wasn't demanding. That is the love that husbands are to endeavor 
to carry out towards their wives. This is the goal. Jesus' love is the model. It's the aim. It's the example for the actions of a husband. Love your wife the way that Jesus loves you. That is a supernatural love, isn't it? When you see for us, husbands, look, God says that I can't get, I don't see the full picture of Jesus' love for me. But it's so big, it's so vast, it's so deep, it's so great. But then God turns and says to me and to many of you as husbands, love your wife with that supernatural love. And you are a new creation in Christ. You have the power of the Spirit living in you. So it obviously is possible to love that way, even though it's supernatural. But notice what the Word of God does here in these verses. It doesn't just talk about supernatural love. It talks about natural love, doesn't it? Look at verse 28 and 29. God knows us, men, and he knows that we would look at this lofty supernatural love and say, impossible, it's too high. I can't connect with it. I understand that God loves me perfectly, but how in the world am I supposed to carry that out towards my wife on a daily basis? How am I supposed to love her the way I'm loved by God? That's supernatural. I'm just a natural man. So what does God do in his word in verse 28 and 29? He now brings it down for us. He doesn't get rid of the supernatural command, but he brings it down for us into the very natural, understandable realm, doesn't he? And he points out to us that we love ourselves and we know how to think about ourselves. We know how to look out for our own needs and our own wants. That's pretty easy for us to do. That comes pretty naturally. Amen? So then he says, love your wife. Since you love yourself, it's a given that we think about ourselves, that we care about ourselves, that we think about our hopes and our dreams and our future. Love your wife that way, the same way that you love yourself. God doesn't take back the supernatural, but he gets it to us in a very practical way. I consider Jesus before he gave his life for you on the cross and demonstrated his love for you, he did something else that was a show of love to his disciples, way lower but very tangible. He washed their feet there in the upper room. Like, I'm going to bring this right down. Was that as great a show of love as the cross? No, it wasn't. But he brought it to something very understandable to them. Like, look, this is what love is. This is what care is in the most practical way. I'm going to give my life for you. But he showed them a picture of that in the natural world, something that they could really latch onto. And since it is easy for us to think of ourselves, husbands, put your wife in that spot. Every time you're tempted to think of yourself first, and I say tempted because that's backwards of the way you and I should be thinking as husbands, Every time you are self, self, just put your wife in that spot. Put your wife in that spot. What, what does she want? What does she need? What's her hope? What's her dream? What's her ambition? Turn that on your wife. Your old nature's default is to think of yourself. Be the new man and put your mind on her before yourself. Now, how many times are we going to have to put ourselves back on track again or allow God to put ourselves back on track again? 
How, how much of the day, how many minutes, how many hours will we think of ourselves and go, I mean, I'm not even thinking about what's good for my wife. I'm just thinking about me. God says, well, take that natural man and flip it around. Consider your wife. I'm going to ask women, ladies, a guy, your husband, loves you that way. Does he have to give his life on the cross for you? If he loved you the way he loves himself, wouldn't that be pretty good? You guys are afraid to say yes. Just say yes. That would be really good. Just say, oh yes, that would be great. We probably won't ever have to give our lives literally for you on a cross the way Jesus did. So Jesus puts it there and says, this is what it means today. Care for your wife, love for your wife this way. What are her desires? What are her hopes? What is good for her, genuinely good, according to the Lord's good pleasure? Not your good pleasure, because your pleasure really isn't good. It's crooked. But according to God, he takes the natural love. So the third question is, will you care for her like you care for yourself? Will you love her the way you love yourself? I won't completely get into how our cultures try to lie to us and tell us that we don't love ourselves, right? It's, it's, God says, you love yourself, right? You love yourself so much, you can't even see straight. You think about yourself so much, you don't even realize it anymore. Realize now that you're putting somebody else before yourself. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I see concerning Christ and the church. Look at what the word says here. When a man cares for his wife, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, he is caring for himself because husband and wife are one flesh. It's not like they're one flesh. According to God, he has made them one flesh. So when a husband loves his wife spiritually, her well-being spiritually goes first, her emotional, physical well-being goes first, relational. And when a husband hurts his wife, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, he's hurting himself. Now, God is speaking the language of men. They don't want to hurt themselves. They want to do what's good for themselves. But oftentimes, in the context of marriage, we think in terms of, I'm going to get back at that person. I'm going to stick it to them. I'm going to say or do something that's going to hurt so badly that it's going to kind of pay them back for what a punk they've been, to put it lightly. But do we realize that when we hurt our other half, right? That's a good name for it, actually. When we hurt our spouse, we're hurting ourselves. And we're listening to the lie of the enemy that says, oh, you're, you're getting things kind of back up to even where they should be. The damage that they've done, now you're starting to kind of even things out and make them realize how badly you're hurt or what right you have to be embittered. The Bible says here to husbands that you're not hurting them alone. You're hurting yourself. 
Now, that destruction is, is sometimes difficult for us to see. And we don't see it immediately. I pray for myself, and I, maybe I should pray for some of you husbands, that like, when you hurt your wife, that you would feel the pain as quick as possible. That you would say, I just hurt her. Maybe I was technically right in my own mind, but I wasn't dwelling with her in understanding. I was just being a jerk. And when I hurt her, it hurts me. It destroys the one flesh that God has given to me. I'm not getting ahead. I'm getting behind. I'm hurting. So will you care for her the way you care for yourself? Will you love her? Because you are one according to God. Before we start to talk about sanctification, because that's spoken of in this portion, I quickly want to revisit justification. Because Jesus loved us before we ever followed him. And it's so true that he initiated our salvation. Now, I hear this sometimes in society today when it comes to men and women and people say things are so backwards. And I'm not trying to make this into some, you know, oh, she's being not old-fashioned enough because she's being the pursuer. But according to the Bible, the man should be ambitious for his wife. Isn't the Lord a pursuer? Doesn't he come after us? Doesn't he initiate? Oh, yes. Your salvation didn't start with you, right? He was calling your name. We learned earlier in this chapter, you were predestined before the foundations of the world to be adopted as his child. So when you see a man who is lackluster and the young woman is just, man, she's pulling out all stops. She's pursue, pursue, pursue. Uh, If I have an opportunity, me or my wife will kind of warn that young lady or that lady that's, you know, not necessarily so young, like, hey, it seems like you're kind of chasing after him. Well, I like him a lot and I want him to know that I like him. But you see the pursuit of God. You see the design. Like he should be ambitious towards you in a way where he wants to win your heart. That's what the Lord did for me and for you. He initiated that relationship. And once we commit to following him, he becomes our Lord. That redemptive work, it's complete. It is finished. We're redeemed. We're justified. And that's the picture of marriage, our relationship between with us and and the Lord. The husband sacrificially loving his wife and, and her following that lead. So he sees us, and this is one of the great mysteries about our salvation, is that he sees us as perfect, yet he knows we're not perfect. How does God do that? He he sees us according to the righteousness of Jesus, yet he dwells in us, the Spirit dwells in us, in order to purify us and make us more like Jesus. How does God have that, that kind of power? I don't know, but he does. He sees you and me as completely pure. So it should be so in the context of marriage. And men once again say, I can't do this. I can't see my wife as, as pure and holy and sinless. She's so sinful, I can't possibly think of her that way. Let me put it like this for you. I'll drink water and you guys can giggle a little bit. Our official wedding pictures didn't turn out 
it was a disaster. They were all blurry. We paid somebody to come and do it. And it was, when we saw them, our hearts just sank. Something was wrong with the camera. It was, it was just a debacle. So we don't have, like the best pictures we have from our wedding are, a lot of them are just snapshots that some of you took, actually. They're like, oh, there's, there's a good one, right? And I recently, again, saw some pictures of Michelle when she was just trying on the wedding dress. You know, when the girls go out together and they're looking for the dress, and they were taking pictures, and some of them weren't even in the dress that she actually bought to be married in, and they were just, they're amazing pictures. They're way better than the ones, and there were just all these pictures of Michelle Beeman in her wedding dress. Do you think that when I looked down the aisle at my wife, I was thinking, finally, I get the opportunity to fix her up and make her the way she should be. <laughs> We're going to be married, and I can change her into the woman that I've always wanted. Do you think that I looked down at the end of that aisle as a ex- very, very expectant husband-to-be and thought, yep, sanctification is going to start. The changes need to begin right away. No, I'm going to tell you, and maybe not every marriage is this way, but it should be. And this is back to what's good. I was not thinking at all about what changes I wanted. I was just thinking, we're getting married, right? She's mine. I am hers. It wasn't based on this sense of merit. It was like, she's the one. Finally, the day has come, right? Sanctification is built on justification. The reason you're willing and open to the Lord to change you is because you know that he loves you so much, right? Because you know that you're his child and you've been washed clean, that he's forgiven your sins completely. Your sanctification, the process of God changing you into his image, the reason you're open to that is because you're justified, Do you know why people who aren't Christians come among us at church and they think they're speaking of keeping God's commands and they're all joyous about it? Like, this sounds like dread to me. It's because they're not saved. And so when they hear the commands of God, they're burdensome to them. And they think, oh, they're just rule keeping. It's because they don't know the sweet salvation of Jesus. We're singing he's sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? Our sanctification is based on the truth that we're justified, that we're presented clean and bright. And that is our position in Christ. It's not, I didn't know what it meant when I was a kid, you know, picking the daisies, sitting in the meadow. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. I wasn't smart enough to think he loves me not. I would have had to say, he loves me. He doesn't love me. That's the only way I would have understood it. But when a wife has that mentality of, well, I think he loves me. It kind of seems like he does. Or now it seems like he doesn't. As we get into sanctification, do you see why the change and the growth is not going to be very open? It's not going to happen very much because the foundation of love is shaky. We can't have that. Sanctification. Why do we want to change? Because Jesus loves us. Why are we open to it? Why are we excited about being new creations in Christ? It has to do with the truth 
that the Lord pursued us, that he loved us, that he saved us. We're justified. Question number four. Husband, how will you seek your wife's sanctification? Yes, once we're saved, then the Lord begins a sanctifying work in our lives, this process of making us more like him. It's ongoing. Do you see what it says in verse 26? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. He's refining us, setting us apart for his glory, positionally righteous, but now he wants to make us practically righteous. And don't we expect the Lord to change us and grow us? We want it. Now, in marriage, is it like that? Is there that solid foundation of acceptance, of love and purity? And then now we can grow. Now we can change because we know where we stand. We know who we are. How did you answer the question, how will you seek your wife's sanctification? How will that happen in, in, the, in a marriage? What's the tool that God uses according to his word right here? His very word is the tool, isn't it? It says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. God's sanctification tool is his word. He uses his spirit to teach us his word so that we can be washed with, us, with it. He convicts us. He builds us up. And those scriptures just sweep over our lives and, and make us more and more set apart for the Lord. Isn't that true? Husbands, do you see yourself as the agent of change in your wife's life? Because according to God's word, you're not the agent of change. God's word is. God uses his spirit to change you and to change her. And if we think we are the change factor or that we're going to be the, the director of the change, we've missed what the Bible says here about the washing of the water of the word. Marriage is a sanctifying process. Now, I don't just mean that it's a trial and that you learn from the trial, like I'm being forged through the fire. When I say marriage is a sanctifying process, some are like, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm really growing close to the Lord because I have so much struggle. It's not just that, although God can use that, but it's a growing together into the image of Jesus as he sets us apart. It's not supposed to be drudgery, just as your sanctification before God. It's supposed to be something that you're eager for. I'm going to tell you something that I think you know, but it definitely is worth saying. The enemy would love to close you off to the sanctification that can happen through your marriage. The devil, Satan, would love to close that avenue for godly change in your life. Change is, is really hard. It's just difficult for us. It's a lot easier to pull ourselves away than, than open ourselves up again. But it's still clearly God's design. I'm not making it up. It's right here. Will you be resistant to the clear command of God's word? Don't let the enemy sow that kind of discord in your marriage. If the enemy can close off that avenue for growth, if he can come between you and your spouse in that way, he's one 
a major victory. Ask for God to to renew that iron sharpens iron in your marriage, to bring it to life in, in the first place. Because according to God's word, sanctification is supposed to be alive in your marriage. Now, it needs that, the foundation, the right foundation, which is sometimes missing. But look at what, what the word says here. Washing is gentle, isn't it? And it's not by accident that God decided to inspire Paul to write the washing of the water of the word. If you're washing with something in the shower and it's abrasive, did you just continue? Like this is, this was like rubbing my skin off my neck. No, it's like, oh man, that, you know, lava soap. Do you remember that stuff? I'm sure they still have it. Okay, lava soap is good for certain things, right? But it's not like this, a good, just all around body soap, right? And I know some of you men have fallen so far that you don't even use bar soap anymore. You use like the little foo-foo stuff in the, the <laughs> container. And, and I don't agree with that, but that's up to you. It's not scriptural. I'm just like, hey, yeah, that's not soap. That's like slime that you put all over your body or whatever. It's like, the point is, is that washing is supposed to be gentle. Didn't we learn in 1 Peter chapter 3 that there's an understanding a dwelling and understanding that a husband is commanded to have towards his wife. And when the word washes over here, it's not supposed to be something abrasive and obnoxious. It, it's not the, the army sergeant word mentality. We don't relate the word of God the same to everybody. Do you realize that? We get instructions about this. If there's a young man, I, I treat him pretty rough right? Because I'm supposed to, right? Get your act together, right? If there's an older man of my, of my father's age, I treat him with, I want to treat him with a lot of respect and honor. And if it's my wife, the gentleness, right? That washing of the water of the word is a gentle process, not something that's abrasive. That's real sanctification in the context of marriage. And it's not the husband being the agent. It's God's great word in the tool as the tool in the hands of the potter. And so we have the word of God. Read it, hear it, memorize it, teach it. Let it wash over you. Let it be alive in the context of your marriage. Husbands, are you participating in that washing over of your wife by the word? It, it can't be happening in your marriage if it's not happening in your life where you Love the good word of God for yourself. Because of our depravity, because of the agenda of the enemy, it's so common for two Christians to just take their personal relationships with God, including the washing of the water of the word, and just do them totally separate. And, and like they're married, they both love God, they both want to serve God. And you're like, why is this so separate? Well, this is just the way I like it. I just don't picture us, you know, memorizing the word or studying the word or singing the word together. I just don't, I'm just not like that. And we don't realize sometimes that it's the agenda of the enemy to get us separated because there's great strength in that togetherness in the word of God. It's by, by God's design. We're, we're used to coming and hearing the word of God at church. It's normal. It's a good normal, but it's still normal. You, you come here and you're like, I expect to hear the word for it to wash over me, right? 
when you are alone with the Lord, it's just you and him, you got your Bible out, you're expecting his word to wash over you. I'd like, I opened this up, maybe at first it was out of duty, but now he's showing me things about him and about myself. It's the words washing over me, it's good. If you're married, there's another context where you should be used to the word washing over you, and that's between you and your spouse. It shouldn't, yeah, you have a personal relationship with God, but it's not a private relationship with God, is it? And getting that, even with two people that are pursuing the Lord, sometimes there's a lot of struggle. And when I ask the question sometimes, even in my own marriage, why is it so separate? Because I'm full of the flesh. And I need to pursue and make sure that that in the word time with my wife is happening, right? Not just at church, not just when I'm reading my Bible and studying on my own, um, but saying, no, this is a part of what God designed our marriage to be. So how does that happen in post-marital counseling, premarital counseling? We talk about this a lot. Like, how do you, how do, what does it look like for the word to be alive and sanctifying in a washing way for the husband to wash his wife in the water of the word. Now, I do think that a lack of consistency can really just make it so it hardly ever happens. But the word of God is telling us here that it's not always like a formal Bible class. Like, okay, Michelle, sit down. I'm going to teach you right now. You need a good washing. It's not, oh, you know, it's, that is usually not going to go over very well, right? But look at what the word says before this, if we back up into Ephesians 5.19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's the instruction that we get right before all of this in marriage. That, to me, sounds like washing with the water of the word in a very natural yet supernatural way, that this would be what our conversation is like, that this would be a part of the way we relate to each other and know each other, that it would be grounded in the word of God. The same is true in Colossians. There's a section on marriage in Colossians, and right before the section in Colossians on marriage, it says this, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then it goes on in a very similar fashion to Ephesians 5 and gives instructions on marriage. So do you see the rich interaction around the word that is to be taking place. I see it. And if it isn't normal, if it isn't a good norm that's been established, maybe the reminder here for you and for me is, why isn't this happening if it's so clear? Yeah, there's going to be all these things in the way. People say, I don't have time. I don't have time to obey God. I don't have time to be married, I guess, in the way that God says that I'm supposed to be but that we would see again, like this is what God says. And 
it is so common for both or one to just be totally resistant to it and say, man, I'm not even going to think about that. I love Jesus, but I'm not going to sit down with the Bible and you. That's like the last thing I want to do. And then there's a lot of patience and a lot of prayer that goes in it, but it's still the pursuit. Both of these letters, both Colossians and Ephesians, have this lead-in of this rich interaction between husband and wife, that thankfulness, that singing, that teaching. Do you see it? So if you want some specifics, and Michelle and I go back to these all the time, what do you do in your marriage? Share with each other what you're thankful for. What do you do in your marriage? Pick a verse or two or a whole chapter, one verse after another, to memorize together. Sing psalms together. Some people think, oh, you know, your family is probably musical all the time. My parents, my mom played some guitar, but not a ton. My parents just sang with us. It was normal to sing. Not because we're singers, but because we're Christians. Because we're supposed to be singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God, in the car, at home. Singing songs that are full of God's word. Discussing the word. When Michelle tells me about what she's studying, sometimes I'm thinking, I want to be in her class. That sounds awesome. I'm leaving and I'm going in there with the fourth graders. So listen about that. Teach together. I don't know how, I mean, there's some of you sitting here listening to me tonight. I told you in premarital counseling, there's going to be this pull apart. Didn't I tell you? Somebody say yes. Okay. And then it's going to pull you apart. Serve the Lord together. There are seasons when I, I think to myself, like, I just need to go back to teaching Sunday school with Michelle again. That'd be great. It's because there's more of a battle to be like, hey, let's, let's do this together. Let's dwell richly in the word of God, praying together. That is God's design. Difficult because we're wayward to, to get on there. You get on track and you think this is really good and you stop for some reason. Let's get back to doing what we know God says is good. That change happens when we're in God's word, allowing him to wash his word over us. When it comes to the sanctification, we can sometimes have the attitude that says, well, I'm open to God and all these other areas. He is changing my life, so I really don't need the marriage sanctification piece. Do you know what you're doing? You're literally taking a page or a piece out of God's word, a verse to say, like, I don't need that, right? God doesn't know me. I've got all this other stuff alive in my life. I've got good friends. I hear from the Lord. I know his word myself. Why do I need to involve my spouse in this? Because God says we are too. So sometimes it's simply a matter of us going to the Lord and believe me, over and over it is for me and saying, I need forgiveness, God. I've strayed again from, I, from what I know your design says. It's a spiritual battle. Guess what we're leading into in Ephesians chapter six? Warfare, spiritual warfare. It's not, oh, this is gonna just fall into place. If you do pray with your spouse, if you do memorize his word together, if you do discuss his word together, it hasn't just happened. You've had to be very purposeful and obedient about it, and you realize that it's a battle, but it will transform your life, and it will transform your wife. Husbands, you might think like, oh man, this is there. The closer she is to Jesus, 
I'll say the same thing that I've told many of you. You're going to be better off for it. Even if you are a stinking, selfish loser, if you are smart, just think about this. The closer she is to the Lord, the more kind, patient, and serves. Even if you're a total freeloader, you should want your wife to draw near to God. Now, I'm not saying you should be a total freeloader and just a, a loser, but she, when she's near to God, that's not a disadvantage to you. How is that a disadvantage to you? It's the most wonderful gift in the world. Nevertheless, last verse, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The Spirit sums it all up right there in the last verse. But he does something else aside from summarize. Look what he does. He addresses the person who says, I'm the exception. My marriage is the exception. God, God doesn't get it. So he says in this last verse, let each, see where it says that? Let each one of you, like these aren't just general marriage principles. They're my marriage principles, or at least they're supposed to be. They're yours. Let each one of you see to it that you follow through with the love, husbands, with the submission, wives. They're for you. They're not for somebody else. They're for your marriage. Lord, we lean on you. We trust in you. And even though our, our trust wavers sometimes and we start to do things in our own strength, we return again to the goodness and the design that you've put forth here. We put ourselves in submission to you, Lord, and we're reminded that your way is good. Even when it doesn't seem good to us or it just doesn't seem possible, your way is still good. And I pray, Lord, that we would have faith to believe that truth. I pray right now that you would strengthen and enrich each and every marriage here tonight, Lord. in a lot of different places, a lot of different circumstances, but I, I'm asking, Lord, that I know we pray for this often, just on Sunday morning, we pray for our marriages kind of general, but Lord, I pray specifically that you would move in husbands, that you would move in, in wives and in, in their hearts, and that they would come to you and clearly see what you've said and just say, what have I neglected, God? Not where can I lay blame, but what have I neglected? What delight have I taken out of what you intended to be good? Lord, thank you for your, your, your patience. I pray that we would shine forth. I pray for each person here that will be married at some point in the future, that they would um, remember and hold fast to your word, that they would, would put your principles into practice even before they're in, in that place, Lord, that they would see how good it is to live on the path that you've laid forth for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.